This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Australia's first net zero carbon housing estate, The Cape, in Cape Patterson, Victoria. The Cape is less than two hours from Melbourne and is situated next to some of the most picturesque beaches in Victoria. Cape houses are super efficient, averaging over eight stars, comfortable all year round, and don't burn any fossil fuels. The estate features more than 50% open space, wetlands, kilometres of walking and cycling tracks, a huge community farm, a sports precinct, and direct walk-on beach access. Keep a lookout for the launch of the Cape's highly anticipated final stage in just a couple of months. Head to liveatthecape.com.au. Hi, thanks for joining me on the Dumbo Feather podcast. I'm Nathan, I'm the editor here, and I'm really excited to be sharing this conversation today with two extraordinary women who have both featured in the pages of our magazine, Claire Dunn and Eleanor Bancroft. Both are rewilding facilitators, leading their communities into deeper relationship with the natural world, themselves and one another. Claire has just released her second book, Rewilding the Urban Soul, which we'll be hearing more about in an episode down the track. For now, she is getting us acquainted with Ella's mission, which is layered and rich. Ella's a Bundjalung woman based in the Northern Rivers who writes stories and poems, leads workshops, has a podcast, and for several years has been running The Returning, an annual event that provides a place for all women to relearn the ways of their past. I love the intersections in Ella's work. As well as rewilding, she is thinking deep and wide on decolonization, the rise of the feminine, belonging, sexuality, and movement. She explores some of those topics here with Claire. I'd love to start with just acknowledging where I am in time and place and also offering some thanksgiving. So right now, I'm calling in from the banks of the Birrarung, otherwise known as the Yarra River in Melbourne. And this is the place of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And right now I'm starting to feel the change of season, the sore throats coming in, the first rains of winter and noticing the migratory birds heading north for the winter and a little bit of sadness in my heart as they fly to the warmer climates and also noticing the fungi poking their heads up through the soil at the moment and mushroom foraging season coming upon us, which I'm excited for and My gratitude today is for a day in the wilds yesterday where I took myself to a new place and just experienced the deep sustenance and joy in being in a wild landscape that's new to me and mirrored back by so many different life forms and wilder others. And so I feel really filled up by that experience. Ella, I'd love to invite you to uh, locate yourself in time and place and maybe offer any gratitude that you have this morning. I'm currently sitting in Gabamba, which is also known as Byron Bay, and that's the Bundjalung word for meeting place. I am looking out my window at my garden, and it's a little bit cold here, but I'm also surrounded by trees, so I feel very thankful to be in and amongst the weather as it's turning. It's not turning the way it is in Melbourne, but it still turns a little bit for us here in the more tropical climate. And today I'm giving gratitude to the ocean, which is one of my deepest loves. And I can't 
give enough gratitude to water in general, but specifically because it's Earth Day today, to the ocean. So, Thank you. Thanks for the reminder as well that it's Earth Day. feels even more appropriate and exciting for me to have this conversation with another Earth-based woman on Earth Day. My gratitude definitely extends to this conversation because when I began researching more into what you offer the world and who you are, I was struck not only by the overlaps in my own passions and work in relationship to rewilding and belonging and earth-based spirituality, but also the incredible kind of eclectic nature of your, of your kind of medicine bundle, which includes sexuality and yoga teaching and writing, poetry, storytelling, women's empowerment, Indigenous empowerment, counselling, food sovereignty, probably many other threads that I am not aware of. And on your website, I loved how you bundled up your offerings as a connection therapist. I really loved that phrase. And I wonder if you could say a little more about this idea of the connection therapist, what you're seeking to connect people to or to heal, what kind of disconnections are you seeking to heal and how all these threads of your life feed into that? I think it started for me at a very young age, which was retracing my ancestral steps through my own Indigenous bloodlines to the Bundjalung Nation with my mother. And through my life, I've experienced many things, as many people have, but the overarching concept which keeps coming back to me, and I do feel like my old people are reminding me, is that we are in all of these trauma fields where there's imbalance because of the disconnection in the world. And I feel that deeply, not only for the collective, but also for my own sense of self. So my own journeying has been one where I have reconnected with myself, reconnected with my community, my family, and also reconnected with the natural world, which encompasses all of that for me. And I think In the Western lens, we can compartmentalize ourselves, our family and our community and nature as being separate. So I guess I start there with helping people to reconnect to those places. But then through the journey, what kind of naturally unfolds is that really deep understanding when you are connected that all of that is the same thing. So when I'm fighting for Indigenous rights, when I'm fighting for women's rights, when I'm fighting for the earth, they're all embedded in a fight for the same thing, which is a fight to reconnect to the world around us. And when you see it like that as well, for me, it started to shift the way in which I showed up in the world and the way in which I judged other people too. I stopped seeing people as bad or just placing negative connotations upon them and started just seeing them as either disconnected or lost in that space of connection and really just looking for a way to find it again. I've studied so many modalities in my life. I've traveled a lot around the world. I'm incredibly privileged to have been such a rebel at heart that I didn't want to take up a nine to five and I didn't follow a mainstream narrative of going and getting a mortgage and doing all of those types of things that are seen as successful and blessed to be able to have done that because it's landed me at this point in my life where I am now, very much still a student and continuing the learning, but trying to bring people along with me to that learning and co-create together and be a part of it together. 
Yeah, I really resonate with that sentiment of the magical trifecta of connection to earth, self and other can feel like these different projects sometimes. Like you've got to go and do this and you've got to go and connect to this and then time for myself. But actually they're all one bundle. And once you start opening up the threads of connection to any of those realms, they all feed into the other. And this whole project of reconnection is mutually supportive. I'd love it if you could tell us a little about your own journey of reconnecting to your Indigenous roots, reclaiming your Indigenous heritage. What was the catalyst for you to really look deeper into your own Indigenous roots and to reclaim that heritage as something of power and strength and resilience for you? From the day I took my first breath, that journey began. I'm very privileged to have grown up with a very powerful, strong, connected mother who reminded me and my brother as we were growing up of the importance of nature. She's a visual artist and she taught me that money can't buy you happiness and love. And she painted a world that was so magical. I had never seen anybody else paint nature the way my mom did. And the only way that I can describe it is that in every landscape or every tree and every animal she painted such breath such depth into them so from that point I really was always struck by the beauty of nature and I think looked through a different lens of that I then returned back home when I was five and we lived on country out on a mission and it was no longer a working mission The mission, for those who don't know, is a place where the missionaries came over during the invasion and basically grouped Indigenous people together and cut them from culture, language, or attempted to, and Christianized them. So it's a little bit of a fractured world out there. It's definitely one where you feel the effects of colonization and still continue to feel it. But at that point, we were living off grid and waking up every morning swimming in the river. That was our source of water that was where we bathed. In the colder months, we would carry water from the river and we would heat it on the stove and pour it in the bath and there was no electricity and we lived like this. At a young age to live like this, they say from the ages of zero to seven is when you're actually impacted for the rest of your life. You have all of these programmings in you. So to be there at five years old and to be immersed with my mother and my Indigenous community played a huge role in my understanding of who I was. And I think from that point, when I moved back to the city, I always knew I didn't want to be there. I always knew I didn't feel quite right, that I had one foot in both worlds and I didn't really know how I was going to navigate it. But there was a lot of information that was missing because of colonization that I didn't get this amazing, rich culture passed down, as many Indigenous people have probably felt this because of things like stolen generation and policies placed upon them that have stopped or at least prolonged that information from landing in the right places. So I set out to basically find it around the world wherever I could. And I went to many different countries, India, Central America, to follow the Mayans. And to try and piece together my own understanding of my connection and spirituality through the lenses and experiences of other Indigenous people around the world, and then come back and be able to embody that was kind of my journey. And landing back on country, being back here in the Northern Rivers has been a huge component and catalyst. And, you know, I was brought back here by my old people, by my ancestors, who I had no idea what I was going to be doing here. 
but my grandfather did, and this may sound really woo-woo, but he led me here. He passed away when I was two, but he led me here in a vision and just told me I needed to be here with my mother and that we needed to work with women and we needed to be back on country in order to do that. So I moved back here and then a few years later, my mum moved back up here with me and I'm happy to say that my younger sister is about to move up in less than three weeks. Yeah, that's, that's the basic I can feel in myself, but also imagining feeling in the listeners just that yearning for some of what you experienced in that first seven years of your life, growing up with a strong, connected, creative mother who really opened you to the wild world and provided that role modelling of what it is to be a connected woman on the earth. It's a deep yearning in so many of us. And I just wanted to kind of continue on that thread. It's a question I often ask workshop participants sometime in the process is what is your deepest yearning really trying to feel into the deepest inquiry of people's lives at this moment in time and a really common answer is to belong the deepest yearning is to really feel a sense of belonging like belonging to belong and as we've just heard for you as a Bundjalung woman it's a different question because your ancestors bones are buried on that land over generations and you also experienced a, a really deeply connected childhood So how would you respond to someone who is really seeking to belong to the pocket of this country that they find themselves in? How would you point them in the direction of practices of belonging or how to come to that question itself? You know, we're in an amalgamation of many different types of cultures here in Australia. And one of the things that I love to remind people is that to find or to feel into that point in your line where one of your ancestors was disconnected by a system that was imposed on them. All of us have this common story of disconnect. And if we retrace our ancestral steps, we can find that person. But also when we retrace our ancestral steps, we refind our stories. And the stories for me are our places of pure truth. And that's why I feel a deep sense of belonging here, but also have bloodlines to England and Scotland and have felt the pull to go to those places and to inquire a lot about my ancestors from those places, how they landed here, which has made a much clearer picture for me of who I am. And I think sometimes we forget about those who have come before us, especially in our family line. And I urge people, if you have your grandparents alive, if you have your aunties, your parents, ask them about their life. Ask them about what they may know of the history of your family coming to this land. Because when we retrace those steps, we all have this place of belonging on the earth. And we all have a place in us that was once connected in our ancestral lines. So it's also a really great way to deal with cultural appropriation and people feeling like they can't be land-based or have earth skills because they feel like they're stepping on the toes of Indigenous people in this land. And so a big part of my work is really wanting every single being on this planet to understand their deep connectivity and place here, but they have to do it through their own stories because there's been too much trauma, especially on this land, but all around the world where stories have been stolen. And so we have to find that place in ourselves, And that place for me is what I believe is a real truth of belonging. Yeah. It's really interesting to feel into because I'm a rewilding facilitator as well, one of my threads. And so I do teach people some of the skills of 
identifying foods on the land or medicinals on the land. I'm curious about how you see these rewilding skills or earth skills, lifeway skills. How do you see them as an opportunity for belonging, as a technology of belonging? And as an Indigenous woman, how do you see rewilding in the broader context of reconnection? Rewilding, it's so dear to my story. And I feel so privileged to have been able to meet many women in Australia and also overseas who really allowed and brought context to what that word was in my life. For many reasons, I think it's a way for us to remember our magic. And that's one thing that I discovered through my own process of rewilding was that the domestication of human beings has been our downfall in many ways. It is very much linked to capitalism, colonialism and consumerism, the three big C's. And for me, when I started to rewild, it was really a path of shedding the complexity, going back to a more simple way of being, but actually going back to a more calmer state. That's what I feel with the rewilding world. Fire is my heart and soul element. I am just by nature, always lighting one. Anytime I can, I'm encouraging others to light a fire and gather around it because there's this unbelievable mysticism around the elements in this world, but specifically fire because it is a place that holds such deep energy and it can really shift and change the way we communicate with each other. I always speak to people who are maybe having issues with their partners and say, you know, if you're going to bring up a disagreement, light a fire or even have a candle and sit around it and see how you talk to each other differently while you're looking in a flame. So for me, I think rewilding is a huge component to connectivity, but it's also a place where we can resist this mainstream narrative. It's where we can find the antidote in many ways to capitalism because we start to see that everything is around us. And I think the idea of capitalism and what it does to us is creates this scarcity mindset where we think we need to be reliant on something, that there isn't enough resources for everybody. And when you come back to that place of plant identification, building your own fire, there is a strength that comes with that, that you know. If stuff went down and the supermarkets closed, I could forage weeds and I could find medicine and I could light a fire and essentially I'd be okay. And I think we need to move towards this. We're in very weird times where we are, you know, 2021, the direction we're moving as a human species. This is the antidote. This is the answer. And actually, I think the answers have been here all along. We just haven't been listening to the ancient wisdom. And it's time to bring that back. And everybody has a responsibility on this planet to move away from domestication. I think it's causing a lot of issues, health, mental, physical, for not only ourselves, but for the planet. You know, rewilding is a kind of new story, even though, of course, it's not a new story. It's ancient wisdom, as you say, in modern context. But it circumvents this whole idea of cultural appropriation for me because everyone lives from the earth. Everyone needs water and food from the earth, shelter from the earth. It's a common denominator. So to engage in these actual physical, real skills, no one can argue with everyone's right to survive and thrive on the earth. And I'm wondering if you see it as, as an opportunity to get around the complexities of what is or isn't appropriate for white Australians to engage in and just say, look, this is real. This is the food on that land. This is how we survive on the land. These are the skills of thriving. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's some things that are 
and I don't like the terminology, but owned by every human, which is that we all live in a body, we all have a spirit, we have a mind, we live in a world that's natural around us. The three things I always tell people to do if they wanted to create, because we are beings of creation, is to dance, to sing, and to be in prayer. And those three things are the most sustainable creations we can do as human beings. We were put on this earth to lift the vibrations of this planet. And those three things have not only shown to impact the natural world around us, but they've actually proven is that those three things also extend your life. They are things that bring this deep understanding of joy. And there's a lot in this current world around pleasure. And I think pleasure is very much linked to domestication, it's very much linked to external things. Whereas I believe song, dance and prayer are the things that give you long lasting joy within yourself. And you don't need to consume in order to do it. I know from my own experience, if I have a fire lit and I'm singing songs with people around it, all night I feel this incredible buzz and energy in my body and it's natural chemicals alchemizing with the vibration of what is coming out of our mouths or the music that we're playing. And so that is all of ours to reclaim. And the same as the elements, fire, water, air, earth, they're all ours to reclaim. With the cultural appropriation spaces, I think it's more about the fact that, especially in this country, we have 2.7% of the population that are Indigenous and unproportionable amount of those people are incarcerated. We have an Indigenous peoples that are crying out for rehabilitation and not incarceration. And we need to address that, realize that rewilding means rewilding our whole community. It's about the collective process of bringing everyone with us. Because again, when we go back to what we spoke about at the beginning, the self, the community and nature, if you're only healing yourself, we'll never be healed as a species. We need everybody to be healed. And so a big part also of my work is to encourage Indigenous people to take up those roles of being cultural tour guides, to be rewilding guides, to reclaim that knowledge. Because for so long, our old people and ancestors were told that that kind of knowledge was not needed here on the earth and that that was subpar to the mainstream way. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to pick up one of the big C's that you just talked about then, colonisation. When I told one of my housemates that I was having a conversation with you this morning, he said, oh, that's that woman I see on Instagram with the tagline, decolonising the mind. And I'm curious if you could expand or amplify a little bit on this theme of decolonising the mind, maybe initially how you came to understand the impact of colonisation on your own mind and body and how you started to personally decolonize yourself, free yourself from the constraints of colonization. And then from that place, how you've moved into the space of actively encouraging others to free themselves from decolonization. What do you even mean by decolonizing the mind? I feel like there are things that I've spoken to already. One thing, returning to nature, spending time in nature, understanding 
the importance of slowing down as a pace of resistance and encouraging others to do that also. But one big part of decolonizing is really questioning the mainstream narrative. And this is a really important part of the picture, because until we understand that colonization is not an event, it is an ongoing thing that we are still living within on this country, then we don't understand the enormity of it. Colonization for me has turned into a system in which we all operate within, which is the capitalist system, which I also like to call the greatest pyramid scheme, because it's all about extracting and not giving back. And so to really understand the process of decolonizing, we have to be questioning why we're getting taught the things we're getting taught in high school. The thing I like to remind people is why are our children graduating year 12 knowing algebra, but not knowing how to self-regulate their nervous systems? This is not an educational system that is breeding us to be healthy human beings. And it is definitely not one that's breeding us to be human beings that are looking after the planet. Question everything, question the institutions, question the concept of money, question politics, and then look and revisit Indigenous wisdom in a way that you can see how polarizing they are. I like to talk a lot about the LORE system of this land, which is embedded in the earth and has been here since time immemorial in comparison to a very small couple of hundred years, which the LAW system has been implemented. This Western law system is embedded in individualism. It's embedded in, and like I call, the greatest disease that the colonizers bore in 1788. It was a disease of the mind of individualism that they spread throughout this country. That was that first ability to start disconnecting people from their truth. So to look at that is a very important thing. And then understanding how the Indigenous way used to be here, everything was shared. How do you bring sharing back into your world? Part of decolonizing is this aspect of like, oh, I'm cooking dinner, I'm going to make an extra plate for my flatmate, or I'm going to take some food over to my neighbor, even though they haven't asked for that. We have to start detangling these transactional relationships that we have with people as well. I give to you and therefore you've got to give me something back because the natural ebb and flow of life is that that will happen anyway. What happens sometimes is that can end up being a little bit resentful in our bodies if we feel we've just expelled too much without seeing that sharing is one of the greatest reasons to live here on the planet and a big component to decolonization, I believe. Yeah, just, just question, question everything. Do not assume that this system is put in place in order to serve us. It's most certainly not. It's put in place so that we may serve it. And that's the real truth. Yeah, I've got some fire in my belly just from listening to you. I can feel that element of fire in your words. And I love the micro examples of cook your neighbour a meal and take it over, even though they're not expecting it. Just how the small radical acts that we can do to buck the system, to challenge the system, the old stories that keep us separate. Ella, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your women's empowerment work and initially, this idea of the rise of the feminine force, as I've heard it described in some of your work, or the rise of you know, feminine energy, I was wondering whether you relate to this archetype of the wild woman 
and how you feel the conversation has been changing in women's rights, women's safety, women's empowerment in the context of the media spotlight at the moment. The female rising energy is not just only for those who live in female bodies. When I speak about this idea of going into a different space and time. So for my people, for my grandfather's people, for the Indigenous people of this area, we are in the grandmother time. That transition has happened. And so what that means is that we're starting to have that energy in all of us. And when I talk about the rise of the feminine, I'm not talking about the rise of a young 16-year-old woman or something like that. I'm talking about the rise of a wise elder. And so if we all take a moment to close our eyes, if you're driving, don't do that. But, you know, just like feel what grandmother energy feels like, because that's the energy the earth needs right now and us as a human species. And often we think about grandmothers and they're soft, they're nurturing, but they're incredibly strong. They are women who have lived a full life, whether they are women who are living out in the bush or whether they are women who have lived in urban areas. They are women of great knowledge because they have experienced the world. They have birthed. They have then gone on to watch their children birth. And they have this incredible ability to come back to that place of sharing, of giving, whether that be love or time or. I think of my own mother who's a grandma and all she does is send her only granddaughter the most amazing, intricate art pieces. And she posts these to her and they have this beautiful relationship. How do we all start to really think about how we can bring this grandmother energy into the way we walk into the world? And that's something I think we're really lacking is that we've been too much in this youth-orientated masculine energy for quite some time, which is necessary in the world too. We need that penetrative force and that healthy competitive force. We do need it, but the problem is it's not in balance. So the only way to take down a young warrior is to bring in a grandmother and make him sit and listen to her for an entire weekend or if not longer. So coming back to that space of also deeply listening to ourselves. Yes, this is what I talk about when I'm talking about that space of the feminine rising. You spoke about the wild woman and she is so deep within me. I think there is a falsehood around femininity that we're somehow meek or weak or I don't believe that to be the true essence of the feminine force. It is creation and anybody that has been at a birth or has birthed knows the absolute power of that feminine force that I'm talking about. That raw strength, determination, resilience, that is also something that we need to partner with that nurturing grandmother space. And the feminine is multifaceted. It's many different energies all working at the same time. In one moment, strong, resilient, in the other, holding, nurturing. And in a big way, I think the lesson that needs to be rippled through the grandmother time is coming to forgiveness, forgiving ourselves, forgiving our parents, forgiving our grandparents, forgiving everybody, because again, it's not the individual. It's a system that's been put in place to disconnect that individual. So we have to be in our hearts when we're looking at the big picture of all of this. Absolutely. One of the aspects of your work that I was so inspired by is the creation of the gathering of women, which I think you call the returning. A hundred women coming together 
and only 35 of the tickets actually being financially supported, the rest being given to single mums or Indigenous women who couldn't afford to attend otherwise. And it just sounds like such an incredible cauldron of deep inquiry and, and connectivity. And I'm wondering what happens there bringing a group of women on the land with such a clear intention to really retrace their ancestral steps to rewrite a new paradigm of living? What are the technologies of connection and empowerment that really make the magic at this returning? I mean, I think a big component to the magic of the returning is the 35-75 balance. When you have spaces of deep diversity with different women, I think this is where the true magic comes. We see diversity in the natural world all the time. A garden grows better when you have many plants in it, as do gatherings when you have many stories and perspectives. And the narrative often of retreat spaces or women's gatherings that I have experienced in my life has been one of deep privilege, people who can afford however many hundreds of dollars to go on retreats people that can afford to have their children looked after while they go and look after themselves. And this is not the reality of many women in Australia. So for me, creating a space where it doesn't matter what your bank balance looks like, we have an entire kids corner so that single mums can bring their children and they can also have their children minded throughout the entire day so that they can have access to those workshops because it's about alleviating the pressure I don't want to just offer a spot for a single mother unless I can also offer a spot for her baby. Bringing all these women together for the past, so we started in 2018, we've done eight returnings, completely unfunded, and with the amazing heart and generosity of the community I live in who have provided, whether that be local farms or local small businesses who have provided food and produce so that we may feed every single one of these women and children, or whether it be my incredibly dedicated core team who volunteer as I do to work in the kitchen, to work in the kids' corner, to set up this space so that it's magical, to have a self-care tent where women can go and be pampered, to have women available to give massages to those in need. This event or this gathering is actually given me the most amazing hope for human beings. I have seen how much we are willing to give when we're given an opportunity and a platform to do that. And women just have so much strength in that space. I'm privileged to have a mother who has given up freely her land for me to experiment in these spaces. But also, I think she knows as much as me that the big and strong cultural thread of what we're doing is part of the healing aspect that we're healing our own ancestral line by doing that and by providing this experience and place for people to come back to. I've had women who have attended these gatherings have met their best friends, have met their friendship groups, have found a space in community. Some met their lovers. It's really been a portal for us to explore the possibilities of womanhood in a non-transactional way. And that's what makes it so special is that really the majority of people are there in their heart, just wanting to show up, wanting to learn, wanting to share, wanting to give and doing what I believe is what we used to do on this land, which was giving everybody a right to come and heal and gather. 
really resonate with the possibilities that arise when it is a non-transactional space. There's not that sense of entitlement or expectation about you're going to give me some kind of experience here that I've paid for. Such a co-created experience and I'm deeply inspired by that vision and how it's unfolding. I wanted to ask you a little bit about radical honesty. Seems to be one of your values and practices. Your latest book is The Courage to Tell the Truth. So what would you like to put out on the table if the media is getting more honest about patterns of sexual harm to women? If you could kind of lend your voice to that debate, to that discussion around sexuality or sensuality, what's not being talked about that you want to bring into the conversation on empowered sexuality for women? I think, again, we can come back and look at the education system. Any issues that we're facing in our society should be looking at the way we're educating our children. And these young men and young women who are disembodied from a very young age because they are getting told to basically only operate from the headspace, and that's what the Western education system does. It teaches us to memorize and regurgitate information. It doesn't teach us to be embodied, to look after our body the way we know, to even have these ideas of consent and boundary, which is only recently coming in. I mean, when I was a young woman, no one was talking about consent and boundaries or even the fact that as a woman, I could say no. We're living through a great time where I believe women are using their voice and activating it. And we're seeing the ripple effect of that occur. But I also think the problem is that we're not well-educated. A couple of subjects on sex, it's very basic biology of sex. It's not about the spiritual component of connecting with somebody. Like I think educating young boys is where we start first and foremost about the importance of what it is to actually be connected to somebody in that way because they are the ones that are doing the penetration. They are the ones that are actually going inside. And it's just unfortunate in the current situation is that women hold all of that. So our young men are hurting as much as our young women, but the problem is they're the ones that are putting their trauma into these young women and they're traumatized because they have not been taught properly. A big component is understanding love and what that feels like. If I could rip down every internet tower in this country, I would because I think pornography has been one of the worst things we have given to our young people as a band-aid solution to educational sex ed. The stuff that is out there, most of it is centered around male directors and it's centered around man. It's never centered about the woman. We need to re-educate our young boys that sexual relationships should be centered around the woman. And I don't think that that has been taught ever in a Western context. We're living in a system that's patriarchal. So that means it centers men. If we look at the whole way the economic system is set up, It's set up fundamentally to oppose women's biology. We bleed, yet we have to work. We birth, yet we have to work. There's no consideration to the fact that we're the givers of life and that we have to play into this economic system that allows men to gain more and more wealth while women have to raise children and bleed and sometimes not be able to go to work because of these places. So if that's the fundamental system we operate in, it makes sense that then our young women are coming out not understanding their biology and the strength within that. I could speak about this topic for so long, but my biggest thing is that parents teach their children about body autonomy and especially teach your young boys. 
I see this fractured connection of wisdom that is not passed on from man to man. Women, we're good at explaining to each other what to do, how to do it, how to activate. We are the natural wisdom keepers in many ways. You know, the matriarchal is very true for Indigenous wisdom. Men somehow are punishing each other. Like, oh, you've got to learn that. You have to learn that your own way. I'm not going to teach you how to do that. And it's upon our elderly men in this nation. I speak to the fathers, the uncles, the grandfathers. It's time to say that your way was the wrong way, that it didn't work, and to educate your sons and to educate your grandsons because they need to be passed on the true knowledge of how to treat a woman, of how really to be in sexual relations with a woman, of how to ask, of how to make sure they understand their body. It's just as important for men to understand women's bodies as it is for them to understand their own body. Powerfully said, powerfully spoken. I wanted to read a few lines from one of your poems, which seems to speak to so much of what we've been talking about. Will we remember how we returned to older ways of making medicine through plants? Or did we revert to food in plastic because of our fears? Or how we trusted a phone that only lasted two years? Did we bring back the voices of the grandfathers and the grandmothers? Did we ring our parents to ask for advice or did we just ask Google? Did we choose to spend our days lit by the sun or by the blue light of the computer screen? Did we scream into pillows when we felt angry? Did we learn how to release our emotional body? Did we move forward by acknowledging the past? Did we listen to the answers spoken by the elders and the ones whose bodies and minds have lasted time? Did we plan for a future that includes connection to culture, connection to country, connection to magic? Did we find our magic? Did we start to believe in each other or did we let man-made technology block our ability to access nature's magic and our own? Mm. I sent you an email and I got a great response which said... Please allow for five to seven days to uh, receive a response. I'm practicing the art of decolonizing my business and reliance on technology. Slow is the way I'm trying to go. And this poem speaks to this desire, this questioning of our reliance on technology and the desire to to really slow down. Mm. Yeah, well, it almost feels time for us both to (laughs) shut down the laptops and head out under the sky and onto the earth. So, thank you so much, Ella. Thank you. What an incredible conversation. You can read more about Ella in issue 64 of Dumbo Feather magazine, our consciousness rising issue. She also has a book titled It Takes Courage to Tell the Truth which you can order over at her website, eleanorbancroft.net. For more stories and conversations like this one, become a subscriber to Dumbo Feather magazine or check out our archive of stories over at dumbofeather.com. We'd love for you to leave a review of this podcast, which will help extend our reach. At the moment, we're putting out two episodes a month, and I hope you're enjoying that and all of our content. If you'd like to get in touch about any of it, you can contact me on email nathan at dumbofeather.com. And thanks again to The Cape for sponsoring it. You can learn more about that project and where it's at by heading to liveatthecape.com.au. That's it from me. Whatever you're up to next, enjoy yourself. And I'll look forward to your company again soon on the Dumbo Feather podcast. Head to liveatthecape.com.au.